more sensitive and took to keeping to himself. In the course of his childhood, Francis's already astute mind developed its own inner resources to an exceptional degree. He appeared weak, and he was aware that he appeared weak, but this clear-sighted self-awareness proved little but a torment. As we have seen, this faculty would later become ingrained. His writing would make use of it which had the curious effect both of alleviating the immediate torment and making him even more painfully aware of himself. Kafka had three sisters. The middle one, Otla, became his favorite, and they too were not spared the attentions of their domineering father. Even in public, Hermann was not above reproaching his children, remonstrating with them about what they should have been but could not be. Yet in many ways Hermann appeared to others as the epitome of bluff normality, a successful businessman and a good provider for his family. This, too, inevitably had its double-edged effect on his family, for Kafka and his sisters, living with their father, was a constant trial. On occasion the siblings would gather secretively in the bathroom to work out what to say in their defense, but to no avail. This was a trial in which they were inescapably guilty. Naturally, not a word that immediately springs to mind with reference to Kafka, this family atmosphere built up in him an enormous reservoir of guilt. Here, at least partly, was the source of his future self-loathing. There is no denying that Kafka's childhood and inherent weaknesses rendered him a psychological mess, prey to all manner of neuroses. Yet one must constantly bear in mind that in many ways he overcame and made great positive use of these neuroses in later life. And besides seeing himself very clearly, he also learned to laugh at himself. Max Brod constantly testified to how much the two of them laughed together. The darkness of Kafka's life and his creations were frequently illuminated by lightning flashes of the absurd. He was never less than aware of the ridiculousness of his situation. Among many other things, he was also... A survivor. Such survival, and the creation he made of it, bespeaks a deep, tenuous strength which lived alongside his constantly debilitating weakness. This strength both disguised his weakness and enabled him to examine it more closely. Kafka's weakness was far from visible to anyone but his father, who would probably have found any son of his inadequate. Even as he grew up, Kafka learned to present a public face of extreme normality which he maintained at all times, yet this was a minor creation compared with the literary works that he learned to draw out of himself, like a snake emerging from its skin. Many people are neurotic, with greater or lesser reason, yet how many manage to recreate their neuroses in such consummate artistic form? Kafka's imagination would create the fable of his life from his childhood onward, and like so many childhood fables, this life fable would feature many more or less humanized animals. To escape from the misery of his being, Kafka began early on to imagine himself as an animal, characterizing his being with animaline qualities. As we have seen, Kafka would most famously identify himself with an insect, the beetle hero of metamorphosis. At other times in his stories, he would identify with a rodent, a dog, a mouse, even an ape, all of them despised creatures in their own way. Yet for Kafka, these animals were not portrayed as despicable in themselves, only in the eyes of others, or in their own eyes. 
In one very particular way, this identifying with animals was with Kafka from the outset. A century earlier, the Jews of the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been ordered to take on surnames. Unlike Jewish names, these had to be Europeanized and comprehensible to the authorities. In practice, the visiting government officials often simply gave the Jews their names, handing them out as they saw fit, sometimes serendipitously, often maliciously. Franz's ancestors had been given the name Kafka, which meant crow. The young, dark-complexioned Kafka, with his delicate bird-like features and beaky nose, would certainly have been made aware of his crow-like qualities at school, if not by his Jewish classmates, then certainly by the German pupils. Compared with Hermann, Kafka's mother, Julie, née Lurvi, remains a somewhat enigmatic figure. She certainly had her weakness, invariably capitulating to her husband, even taking his side against the children, in order to deflect any aggression from herself. Surreptitiously, she could be more sympathetic to Franz and his sisters. Julie spent much of her time away working in the family shop, selling gloves, hosiery, and umbrellas to the middle-class clientele. The children were looked after by a maid until she came home in the evening. Kafka would remember fondly how her arrival causes the day already so late to begin again. He reflected, how comforting mother can be, yet characteristically remembered, I did not always love my mother as she deserved, and as I could, only because the German language prevented it. The Jewish mother is no Mutter, the German word for mother. We give a Jewish woman the name of a German mother, but forget the contradiction that sinks into the emotions so much the more heavily. Kafka was being disingenuous here. The causes of his inadequate feelings toward his mother were certainly more than linguistic. Yet his very sensitivity, accompanied by his constant searching for an answer to his problems, any answer, caused him to unearth and examine all manner of insights. In attempting to assimilate, the German Jews spoke the language of a people from whom they often felt alien, a people who frequently despised them. Kafka was one of the first to pinpoint this inextricable predicament, whose full force would become apparent after the Second World War in the poetry of the great German-speaking Jewish poet Paul Celan. Kafka was aware that the very language he wrote in was somehow not natural to him. His endlessly analytic style coolly set down, but never expressed emotionally, the anger and bewilderment he felt at his own situation. When Gregor Samsa awakes and finds that he has metamorphosed into a large insect, he does not rage at what has happened. Instead, he examines every aspect of it and what he is going to do about it. When his mother knocks on the door to get him up, Gregor wanted to answer at length and explain everything, but in the circumstances he confined himself to saying, Yes, yes, thank you, mother, I'm getting up now. Even amidst this monstrous abnormality, he wishes to remain normal somehow to resolve his situation by thinking about it. His immediate intention was to get up quietly without being disturbed, to put on his clothes and, above all, eat his breakfast, and only then to consider what else was to be done, since, in bed, he was well aware, his meditations would come to no sensible conclusion. Kafka's mother, Julie, came from the Lurvi family, who were more varied and much more intellectually developed than the Kafkas. Julie's grandfather had been a rabbi, who had been regarded by many as a saint. 
He had also been a renowned scholar of the Talmud, the book of the laws that govern Jewish orthodox behavior, along with commentaries and interpretations of these laws. Interpretation of the Talmud had for many generations provided intellectual grist for the finest Jewish minds, often in deprived rural circumstances where such minds could have found no other outlet. This activity, though essentially arid and unproductive, had done much to preserve and develop the Jewish intellect. Indeed, Talmudic study in many ways accounts for the astonishing Jewish contribution to European intellectual life that began in the mid-nineteenth century and achieved its finest flowering throughout the twentieth. Before this time, few Jews had achieved intellectual eminence in European thought. A shining exception is the seventeenth-century Dutch Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza, who had indicatively been excommunicated from Judaism. But as soon as the Jews of Europe began to assimilate and exercise their intellect on other than Talmudic matters, the results were remarkable. Instead of abstract religious argumentation, brilliant Jewish minds now applied themselves to secular abstractions, especially mathematics and theoretical physics. Einstein was but the greatest of a host of great twentieth-century theoretical scientists who were Jewish, from Niels Bohr to John von Neumann, from J. Robert Oppenheimer to Richard Feynman, the list is seemingly endless. Jews also began to flourish in other fields, from law to finance, from literature to art. Kafka's achievement in literature was accompanied by that of Arnold Schoenberg in music, Marc Chagall in painting, and a flowering throughout the cultural field. It would thus seem no accident that Kafka's ancestor on the Levy side of the family, the saintly Amschel, Adam, was a renowned and revered Talmudic scholar.